it does kind of create the situation where you do become a representative of your people, right? So it's, it's also becomes like this homogenizing moment when representation becomes sometimes the kind of be all and end all of what diversity work is. There's the sexy work of equity, inclusion, and diversity, and then there's the non-sexy work. <laughs> and the sexy work is, ooh, we built this big program, you know? Oh my God, we have a diversity report. Like that's the, that's the thing that gets everybody really excited and amped up. But the non-sexy work is when somebody who wasn't talking about equity is now talking about equity. The non-sexy work is when somebody who wasn't asking the question about how my choice is going to disadvantage somebody is now asking that question. Welcome listeners to Undersong, Race and Conversations Otherwise. My name is Shira Vadisaria and I'm delighted to be hosting another episode um, with two wonderful people, both both of whom I, I know and I'm quite excited to be in conversation with, Dr. Salima Bemani and Dr. Rashni Limki. Thank you both so much for joining this conversation today. It's, uh, it's an honor to be in your company and have the chance to think a little bit more about the work you do, just to give our audience an introduction to who you are. So Dr. Salima Bemani is a social transformational leader innovator and equity polymath. She is the chief equity and inclusion strategist for other bets at Alphabet Google. She leads partners with and enables the bets to achieve equity, inclusion and increased representation through systemic change. She came to Alphabet as an award-winning social equity practitioner of 23 years, having worked in the public, private, and international and academic sectors, including, for instance, remodeling the Canadian federal government's resourcing channels by exposing racial profiling and structural racism in education systems. She's also worked in the Global South, leading efforts on women's human rights through NGOs and creating racial and gender equity policy frameworks for large-scale institutions. Prior to her role at Alphabet, she was the CEO and the founder of Relational, a global institute focused on empowering organizations on the path of EID. Dr. Bimani holds a PhD in education, focusing on transforming racial and gendered social exclusion in communities and institutions. So welcome, Salima. Thank you for having me. Dr. Rashni Limke is an engineering student Bombay, turned politics major with legal aspirations, Ohio, turned race and ethnic studies scholar, San Diego, turned work and management researcher, London, Edinburgh. Her academic thinking and writing focused mainly on the ethics and politics of work and technology in a global context. In particular, she's interested in the role of difference, primarily race, gender, and ability, in the emergence and distribution of new forms of work. She is currently a lecturer in work and organization studies and the director of equality and diversity for the University of Edinburgh Business School. Welcome, Rashdi. Thanks, Shaira. I love how your biography is punctuated by the locations that 
changed your, your kind of relationship to the work that you've done throughout the trajectory of your life. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's really an honor having both of you here as kind of experts in both academia and industry. And I think, you know, one of the ways that where we kind of thought about and imagined the framing of this podcast episode is one as a conversation that gets underneath the historical and present day challenges and tensions of E&D work, particularly in, in different institutions. Um, now, I know that there might be listeners that um, are not aware of what these terms mean, E&D, um, which we know broadly refer to equity and diversity, but it might be nice to start this episode by kind of un, un, opening up opening up those terms and also maybe letting listeners know how you think about them. How do you approach the languaging of E&D? So I guess it's... It's a bit complicated to even answer this this opening question because um, I think institutionally or organizationally, E&D primarily refers to how do we include sort of demographic difference and cultural in, uh, difference into our, our workforce? How do we kind of, you know, better represent, better support people uh, that are kind of minoritized based on race, gender, sexuality, ability, um, sort of economic situation, etc. So broadly, that's, you know, um, the, the, the kind of like, the three terms are equality, diversity and inclusion, and there's various permutations and combinations. But I think for me personally, E&D is, is a shorthand for sort of how do we do you know, as kind of Salima mentions in her bio, how do we do systemic kind of transformational work in an organizational context, which is very much grounded in in the history of of, um, of social justice movements um, and grounded in a commitment to well to justice, really. So it it depends really on who you ask what the terms mean. That's really, I mean, hearing you talk about it that way, Reshni, it kind of makes me think of also like if we were to take contextual differences around those terms and geographical differences around those terms, I think we would see some nuance, right? So um, everything that you talked about in terms of how institutions have thought about uh, D-E-N-I or E-I-N-D or whatever the acronyms are, um, I think for me in the context of North America, those terms have had very particular histories. And if you take even Canada in the United States, those terms have had very different historical trajectories. Broadly speaking within society, in the context of Canadian society, that word diversity was used as a way to promote a multicultural society, which then made itself into, into institutions. Unfortunately, that multicultural, the notion of multicultural society was always set against the standard of whiteness. So it was like everybody else, white people and then everybody else and then the everybody else were the diversity people you know um and in the context of the united states i think you know obviously the civil rights movement played a huge role um mm -hmm. contemporary in a contemporary sense of exposing i think um notions of multiculturalism and diversity in very particular ways but i think in the, in the context of the united states um that term diversity really came out of 
desire of institutions to in like promote um, cultural sensitivity or cultural enhancement, and really that notion of sort of multicultural competencies, right? That we that were that was really that that kind of mm -hmm. language and that conception was really important to notions of diversity. And so I think for me, it's almost like if you look at geographical differences around the world, those terms start to mean different things. But within the context of institutions, and for me, within within now that I'm in tech, you know, that word diversity has primarily been in reference to what you talked about is bodies of difference, primarily based on initially, I think definitely gender, not even race, because a lot of it was a lot of diversity work in tech was actually thought through gender um, and cognitive diversity. So there's always been a conflation between cognitive diversity and sort of what I would call historical underrepresentation and historical exclusion of people of color and other other folks. So, the, so I think that there's 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 a lot of confusion and conflation also around, you know, what these where these terms have come from, how they've come to be, the purpose that they serve in institutions, um, and I would argue that the term diversity has definitely taken us away from the real work. Mm -hmm. Because of what Salima said about culture, it is one of the things that I kind of constantly find myself sort of banging my head against the wall um, with, re with reference to. I think one of the ways, so just as Salima was talking about kind of cognitive diversity and that being, being a perversion almost of, you know, the, the, what I kind of see as the, the true spirit that underlies um, E&D work. I think oftentimes um, nationality is also kind of brought into, into this conversation about diversity. So institutions will talk a lot mm -hmm. about how many you know, people from how many countries are part of their organization. And that kind of becomes an indicator of diversity without any reference to, um, to racial or ethnic diversity. And so I think, yeah, there are all of these ways in which different people appropriate mm. diversity mm -hmm. um, to get it to mean whatever makes makes it worthwhile you know worth their while yeah I want to pick up on this idea and pose a question back to both of you around what is then the relationship between diversity and representation because it, I, I'm hearing both of your, Salima, I'm hearing your kind of critique of the limit points of uh, diversity in you as well, Reshni. And I'm wondering, um, you know, for institutions that respond to the calls for racial justice through uh, implementing more diversity in representation and leadership, you know, what are some of the, um, I mean, what's, what's, what's the problem there? Or what are the challenges there that you both think about? I mean, I think for me, the, the, the biggest, one of the biggest challenges is that it's pointed us in the wrong direction. So if you think about, um, if you think about the concept, the way in which the concept of diversity has been taken up in, in different fields, institutions, et cetera, it's really, I think what it's, what it's attempted to solve for is just like getting as many different quote unquote people around right. the table. What it hasn't actually done is try to point out that we have a historical problem. And the historical problem is that 
we have had barriers and systemic challenges for underrepresented folks, for people of color, for you know other other social minorities to actually really find their way into institutions and, and thrive mm -hmm. there. That is a very different, that's a very different conceptualization than saying we just need a whole lot of different people because we don't right. have them and we should do it because it's the right thing. We're not actually, there is a, there is a, there is a misunderstanding about what we're actually trying to get at. Um, and I, and I think for me, that is the biggest issue. And I, I always add the H when I say underrepresented folks, like historically underrepresented folks, because what that does is it brings in structures, historical structures that have actually been designed specifically for certain groups of people in the absence of really thinking about those who have been left out and why. I think also just kind of adding on to that, you know, one of the issues around the way representation functions in organizations is, you know, you can have difference at the table but ultimately that difference is still a minoritized mm -hmm. difference both numerically and uh, in terms of experience in terms of history in terms of identity etc and so it does kind of create the situation where you do become a representative of your people right so it's, it's also becomes like this homogenizing moment um, when representation becomes sometimes the kind of be-all and end-all of what diversity work is. Because if you have the bodies present, you know, if you have the right body count, then your problems are fixed because you always have somebody that's able to represent, like, you know, large swaths of, of, of people. Um, and I think that is, that is kind of deeply problematic not just in terms of how institutions appropriate sort of these ideas of representation, but also for the people that are doing the representative mm -hmm. work. So, you know, E&D work as kind of ultimately becoming some form of like mm -hmm. representing mm -hmm. um, difference. Yeah, that's really, that's really, really reminds me of like, um, in what we see within, within tech a lot is a hyper-focus on representation as the solution, as you were saying, Rashmi, to a deeper institutional problem, which it doesn't really get to. And, and that is why for me, um, you know, without an equity, I would say the baseline. So I'm gonna just say that right now. Equity is baseline is actually what needs to be centered. And what's happened with, what's happened with centering representation is that not only do people have to, not only do we think that by having some bodies of color or whoever it might be within our institution, that that's ultimately going to change something. We've also put the burden of the change on right. those people. Right. So not only do we bring in black and brown people, for instance, into our institutions, but then we expect them to actually change the institution. And by the way, not really change it. <laughs> right. That's, that's, that's the part of it. We're not actually asking people, but we don't really want change. What we actually want is to be able to say is that now we're quote unquote more in inclusive because now we have these bodies that are situated and we can, we can identify them. And that again, for me, has been a displacement of what the work actually is. Um, the work for me is not for us to increase representation so that now we can say we have more you know, um, 
bodies of color or women in our institutions, but rather it is actually to say that we, the, the ways in which our institutions are structured, we have to fundamentally mm -hmm. change those so that when and if we choose to increase representation, because historically we have not, mm -hmm. and here are the reasons why, those folks actually will be able to contribute to this institution in a way that's real. And we will be in service of them as much as they will be in service of us, right? That, I think it's, it's a very different perspective. Um, and I still think, to Rashni's point, we're still in a world where representation is supposed to act as a solution to a problem mm -hmm. that's far more complex than that. Yeah, so I think there's such, there's such rich threads coming out of this conversation right now. And I'm hearing you both echo back the idea that diversity as it comes to be instituted is both ahistorical and, and uncontextualized. Um, and so a couple of things, like one, Salima, when you talk about equity, what do you mean by equity? What does that look like um, structurally? But uh, second, I mean, I, I know folks in my own community networks that say, okay, yes, 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 we need to do the equity work, but first we need a seat at the table, right? If we're not represented at all, um, we don't have the space. <laughs> we don't, I can see the tiredness on your faces. We don't have the space to do anything at all, right? And, and so, um, I guess it's, you know, it's also a question of, is it a question of formula? But I'm also hearing what you're saying that the, 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 the burden um, then gets placed on, um, you know, marginalized communities to actually do the work of the institution and oftentimes um, as temporary workers, right? Like uh, good enough to come in, but not good enough to stay. And so, yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Um, what's what's the formula here and what's the possibility of equity? Well, equity for me, again, this is baseline. I, I want to be clear about that. And what I mean by that is that I don't, I don't, I think equity in, in the way in which I think about it within the institutions that I work with is really about having fair outcomes for people who historically have not. And at the very least, it's about getting to parity. Right. So in other words, people are not being disadvantaged by the system um, that they're a part of. That is, again, I would say baseline. Right. That is not for me. That is not the North Star. That's more like, can we just get here? Because mm -hmm. we're not even there yet. Right. There's a long way for right. us to go to justice. There's a long way for us to go to decolonization or whatever it is that we might be aiming for. This is baseline. Um, so I think that 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 is a that is the starting point, and I think that that's actually really hard. And I wish it wasn't. Like I wish that was the thing. I wish getting to equity was the thing that was easy, because then I would then I would feel like yeah, mm -hmm. then we can really push. We can really push to change literally the standards of our organization that have again been designed for the needs and success of particular groups of people. But we're not even there yet, I would argue. And I know some people might think I'm like being a little not not I, I lack hope here, but I don't. I'm just being realistic about what's what's really in front of us. What is fundamentally important is that we shift the burden of change to the people who have the most power. And what we've historically done, and I'd love to hear Rashni's thoughts on this too, is that we've historically made because we've made this about inclusion like kind of getting just getting people to the table and saying that now we have these you know underrepresented folks here great like 
you know, let's have employee resource groups and let's like make them feel good and let's make them feel like they're a part of our, our system. What we actually haven't done is ask the people who have the most power to change. If the most dominant people and the people who have the most power are not changing, if they are not changing mindsets, if they are not using their power differently, if they are not um, actually capable to create equity, it doesn't matter how many underrepresented folks you have in institutions, it, the institution doesn't fundamentally change. Unless, of course, you have a massive sea change and the critical mass of people are underrepresented folks and they have enough power in that institution to make the change, maybe that's a different story. So I think there's a lot of conversation around privilege and things of that sort, right? So privilege is essentially the uh, the lack of discrimination or bias um, based on you know gender or, or race or whatever it might be. I think the flip side of it is that, you know, um, men, white folk, et cetera, can be a problem without ever becoming the problem, right? But that is a privilege that isn't available to minoritized people. So when minoritized people are troublesome, quote unquote, that trouble defaults to their minoritized identity, right? It, it, it defaults to, to their race, to their gender, to their disability, their sexuality, whatever it is. So I think for me, equity is, you know, is the point at which we can, you know, we can be troublesome without it, def- as, as individuals, without it defaulting to, to our kind of minoritized identities. So that's just kind of... Um, a way of kind of flipping the question of, of privilege. I think in terms of representation, um, yeah, there's, there's just so much in that. I think, mm-hmm. and I've said this before in kind of conversations you've had before, you know, I, I do have this very, mm-hmm. and obviously Salima does as well, this kind of very ambivalent relationship to the idea of representation. Because on the one hand, I do think it's important. I, I do think that, you know, I want a critical mass of folks of color. I want a critical mass of queer folks in the organization that I work in because it changes my experience. It also means that in talking amongst Mm -hmm. ourselves, we can envision what change looks like differently rather than just doing it amongst a small group of people or in our own heads or whatever it might be. So I think from that purpose or from that, in that context, um, representation mm-hmm. definitely matters. I think in terms of the issue of like representation and having a seat at the table, there's, there's a variety of issues. In order to facilitate change, you have to understand what the problems are. And as Salima has been highlighting consistently, you know, these are historical issues, these are structural issues, these are systemic issues. Lived experience is the starting point but it's not enough to be able to think through what change requires. So just because you have a black body or a brown body or a disabled body at the table doesn't necessarily mean they are equipped to kind of think through what structural and systemic changes. And this isn't a, you know, this isn't kind of being disrespectful to people. It's just actually giving diversity work it's due which is that it it comes from you know decades of of thought and action and to produce change we need to have familiarity with 
what that history of thought is, what that history of action is, rather than just kind of replicating very tired um, templates of change. And so I think similarly, even if we're going to be talking about, you know, people that have power being responsible for change, I think that's absolutely true. But it's going to require a whole lot of education for that to become possible, right? So I think that is what I find um, lacking in how we conceptualize representation or where change happens. Just because you are a woman doesn't necessarily mean you understand the issues in a, in a systemic or a structural way. Um, and again, that's, you know, that's a burden that white men, for instance, don't have to bear, right? Like their lived experience doesn't have to be the source of, of knowledge. But somehow we, we expect minoritized people in these kind of diversity contexts mm-hmm to be able to immediately just translate lived experience into, um, into kind of transformational practice. Um, and that's both unfair to the work mm-hmm. and it's unfair to the person as well. Yeah, that's, a, that's such a good point, Rashni. And, and one of the things that I think too is that it's, a, it's an irony because institutionally you're as a, as a body of difference, you're being asked to make this change because the assumption is that you you can and you should, but the institution actually doesn't necessarily want to change. And so you're actually set up in such a way where you're working up against the grain constantly. And so I feel like the, the ways in which power structures are set up is like the expectation doesn't actually match the reality. And we actually set people up for failure. And we also... I think it, it actually reinforces the power structure, right? Because the, the number of times I hear of um, women, people of color, people with disabilities, queer folks talk about trying to change the institution and coming up against it all the time, right? So, so, so even though, ironically, again, the expectation is there, the institution is not set up to actually have underrepresented folks, in fact, utilize their power for change. So there is, a, there is an inherent tension in the expectation versus the reality. There is a phrase that um, Sarah Ahmed uses, which I really like. She kind of talks about in institutions, will becoming wall. And that's exactly what, what you're talking about, Salima. It's yeah. the kind of constant yeah. experience of people trying to do this work organizationally. Um, I want to come back to this idea. I think we're actually in it already. Um, this idea of ambivalence and what it means. I know. I know that for both of you who are both, I think, I think, identify as women of color. Uh, but please correct me if if that's not the case. Who are also trained in race studies, right? Trained in critical race studies, and so coming into both academia and industry coming into these existing sets of grammars around um, equity and inclusion and diversity, work with a critical eye towards all of it. Um, I imagine that you've, you've, I imagine that it's a daily struggle actually to negotiate what this language means in the spaces that you work. And so we might characterize this as a kind of ambivalent relationship to the work. Um, What does it mean for you to navigate that space of ambivalence 
you know, I can frame it even differently. I can frame it as what are the, what are examples maybe or moments um, where that ambivalence shows up? Where are the tensions that you find yourself caught in the most? I guess I could kind of come in and the reason I'm hesitating is because actually I'm not quite sure where to start, but I'm, I'm going to try to start. So um, I've been thinking the, the past few weeks uh, for various reasons about a question that was asked me a very, very long time ago by, uh, by, by a colleague when I was doing my PhD. Um, we were having a conversation about something or the other and the person asked me, you know, do you not ever get tired of, you know, seeing everything through the lens of race? And I kind of understand where that question is coming from. And at the same time, there is a certain absurdity to the question that I can't kind of get away from. Um, And I think that that is very much a part of the experience of doing this work, because there is a sense, I think, that there is a switch you know, there's, yeah, there's, there's something that you can kind of switch on and off in terms of seeing the world or seeing issues or things of that sort, right? That there is an ability for you to, to kind of turn off and say, this isn't really about race or gender or ability or whatever it might be. But actually, it's it's kind of like, I mean, the only thing I can think of is like gravity, you know, it's like asking somebody kind of you know don't you get weighed down by gravity all the time well I mean you know this this is this is how it is like there is no other way for me to see it um and I think that a lot of E&D work is about convincing people that that is how it is that what you see as obvious is in fact not you just making stuff up or making a big deal about things but it is really how it is it really is as it is and so I think for me a lot of the the work also is about you know what kinds of translation do we have to do from our head to the people that we're speaking to right what is the language that we can use to, to be heard in the ways in which we want to be heard? What is the language that we can use to be convincing of mm-hmm. the ways in which we, we see things, etc.? Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be incredibly compromising. You know, it, it can feel incredibly compromising and it can also feel incredibly self-implicating because there are strategic choices that you make about what to say and what not to say, what to right. kind of, you know, let pass what to kind of stick your neck out for, et cetera. And that's a constant calculation. Um, And I think that's true regardless of whether, you know, whatever context you're doing this work in. Um, And so for me, the question always is, at what point is my engagement with this work actually becoming completely like totally complicit or totally Mm co-opted at that point I'm out um yeah but it's a fine line and it's one that yeah I find myself constantly 
trying to check and negotiate and, and things of that sort. It's a beautiful answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hearing about your kind of what your limit is or where you actually, um, where your integrity is with yourself around, do I keep going or do I stop or do I, you know, step away is really um, powerful because it reminds me of, um, we had Michelle Obama come to Google a couple of weeks ago and she was talking about um, how when she was um, on campaign for Barack and his first, like before he became president, you know, she didn't know anything about campaigning and she was out there and, you know, trying to like convince people and talk to people and inspire people to get on board. And what she was realizing is that she actually had, she didn't understand her audience. She didn't understand who she was talking to, to the extent where the things that she was saying, she thought was reaching them was actually not reaching them. And so what she talked about was the importance of be there that there is an importance of legibility in the sense that like if you're using a language that people don't understand if you're trying to bring people on for change but mm -hmm. they can't hear you then how far are you really going to get and I, I think that that's actually really really important it's something that I have to negotiate every single day is how do I ensure that the things that I'm saying and doing are actually going to bring people in while at the same time in the process of doing that to your point Rashni how do I not lose my integrity? How do I not, how do I not lose sight of actually what I'm trying to do here? Right. So, and that, I don't know that that is, um, I think it's a very complicated mm -hmm. dance to be in every single day, literally every single day, right? How much do I push? How much do I hold back? What mm -hmm. do I name whiteness? Do I not name whiteness in this moment? Do I talk about structural racism or do I talk about inclusion because that person can't hear structural right. racism but they can hear inclusion okay fine uh -huh. do I start there but really uh -huh. what I want to say is this you know so it's like it's that constant dance that you're doing which I think on on some level I had a colleague tell me this yesterday along the, out, it, around this that that's what makes me really good at my job is what she said to me and she was comparing me to somebody else where she said that that's what actually makes them terrible at their job, is that they can't do that dance, right? And, and I, I received it as a compliment, but right. I'm also receiving it as, but that's the burden. Like that is, right. that is the thing right. that we actually have to struggle with every single day. And we choose it. I choose it. Listen, I have agency. As a woman of color, I've chosen to do this job. Nobody has put me here. I'm, I have agency in it. So I can, I can also step away if I choose to. And obviously that means I have a level of privilege to be able to do so. But in right. that choice, there is a heavy burden that you carry of what, what you think the work is, what the work in fact is, where people are, how do you meet them where they are? How do you bring them somewhere else? Um, and sometimes that means saying and doing things that, you know, on another day, you wouldn't be saying and doing. I think you're both also getting at the affective labor that's completely invisibilized in the work that you do, like having to psychologically negotiate these questions and tensions and, 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 and really, yeah, think about legibility and translation. Um, and, and I imagine it doesn't, none of that stops at that interaction, at that encounter. You walk away um, and it's still, it's still, you know, it's still with you. It's still with us. Um, and so, a couple of things like one, how do you know when it's working then, right? Like how do you, what are the signposts that 
um, that tell you that it is worth it to stay in the work despite um, all of the challenges that have been brought up here? How do you know that it's working? What, what, what are the kind of moments of confirmation for you that incremental change is present? I think having a good group of friends and allies that know what you are trying to do. Um, I think it's nearly impossible to do this work by yourself. And I think also, I mean, just like yeah. a basic yeah. recognition that this, you know, I think I'm presuming this is true of you, Salima, as well. Like, you know, very few people would go into this work thinking, you know, things are going to change tomorrow. Like there is a very clear <laughs> understanding that um, it's, it's a long game and it's, and along the way, it's very possible, you know, you kind of get disillusioned and you have to like pick yourself mm -hmm. up again and, and you kind of keep going because you know it's a long game and hopefully there's people around to kind of reassure you that what you're doing matters. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it is also working on faith. <laughs> which is a bit bizarre to say, but I think there is a truth to that. At least for me, there is a truth to that. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the belief that something else is possible, maybe even a knowing that something else is possible. Like I always feel like for me, it has to go into that space of knowingness. Cause if I, I almost think that almost belief wouldn't be enough. <laughs> like I have to, I have to know that it's possible, even though, there's so mm -hmm. much in the environment that shows me all the ways it feels impossible at times. Um, I feel like that's significantly important. But I think if I was to get a bit more tangible in terms of like, what yeah. is a signpost on a day to day that tell me something is moving or shifting. And what I always say that there's the sexy work of equity, inclusion and diversity, and then there's the non sexy work. <laughs> yeah. And the sexy work is, oh, we built this big program, you know, oh, my God, right. we have a diversity report. But that's the that's the thing that gets everybody really excited. And the deliverables. Up. But what the yeah, but the non sexy work is when somebody who wasn't talking about equity is now talking about totally. Equity. The non sexy work is when somebody who wasn't asking the question about how my choice is going to disadvantage somebody is now asking that yeah. question. The non-sexy work is when um, I see executive leaders getting together in a room, spending an hour talking about how they're going to incorporate EID into their, uh, you know, objectives and key results, that's change. And what, ha what I think, for, see, and it's, and it's very incremental to Reshni's point. It's, it's not like now they made these OKRs, everything changes, right. right? All of a sudden we've arrived. No, that's not what that means. <laughs> what it means is that you, we've, moved, we've moved the needle a little bit to actually get people talking and talking about things and doing things they weren't doing before. Mm -hmm. Now the effect of that or the impact of that we're going to have to walk, we're going to have to walk down some steps in order to understand that, right? And, and to see it through. But I, but I often feel like people don't see those things as wins. Mm -hmm. And the things that they start to see as wins, and it's not just, I don't even think it's like the institution itself. I think people of color too, because we're tired, right? We're tired. We want, we want to see the institution yeah. make real fundamental change to our lives. So these incremental pieces can feel really dissatisfying. 
but what I know, what I know and what I've seen throughout my career and what I know to be true even in my role now is that it is those incremental mm-hmm. changes over time that I think mm-hmm. are going to get us to sustain more sustainable outcomes. Um, mm-hmm. Again, dissatisfying in the moment sometimes, but for to have foresight and a long-term view in this work, to Reshni's point, is absolutely fundamental. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you burn out mm-hmm. and you lose hope. And we, I actually would argue, we actually, we don't do the work that needs to happen incrementally with the people that are sometimes the hardest Mm -hmm. to work with. I love that answer. And I agree also in the sense that the incremental, the incremental kind of changes are actually what take the hardest work, whether it's kind of intellectually, emotionally, you know, because the big shiny stuff, everyone wants to get on board. Um, the the kind of culture shifts, structural shifts, you know, different paradigms of thought or thinking about these issues. That's incredibly hard work. And you don't get the kind of, you know, high from it because it's, it's, yeah, it's incremental. And it might even be cyclical, Rashmi. I feel this way often. It's like it's incremental, but then it cycles back, right? It's like you think you made three steps forward and all of a sudden you're like, whoop, got to go two steps back <laughs> because I thought this person had gone a little bit farther and now they just made a choice or a decision or said something that, right, okay, we're not there yet. Right. So there's, for me, there's a cyclical nature to this work while you're progressively moving forward, right? And that uh, that can, I think, sometimes also be frustrating because, and I hear this from other of my mm-hmm. colleagues who are, you know, equity, inclusion, diversity practitioners, mm-hmm. is that that in and of itself, that dance again, or that, that cyclical nature of it can actually be exhausting because you're like, you're, you're getting hopeful about the changes that you're making, that really hard work that you're doing, as Rashmi mm-hmm. was describing. And then you're like, oh gosh, I gotta take three steps back again you know, and then I got to come back forward again. So it, it, there's a momentum, but that momentum requires a back and forth that can be, I think it, it's important and it can be really frustrating. At when I think of both of you and the kind of work you do, what, what strikes me is that you're, I think of you both as incredibly resourced and, and, and as two people that have immense capacity to do this work. And I think part of it is also about the commitments that you hold to visions of, of, of social justice and decolonization. Um, you know, I think that your own lived histories and biographies come to shape the resources and the capacities that you have to do this work. And so I guess I'm, I'm inviting you both to maybe comment on what keeps you resourced in this work? What keeps you, um, what, what strengthens you on the really tough days? Um, what motivates you to keep going? I, I can say on a, on a bad day, I actually don't want to, to continue with the work. It's, you know, I look for mm-hmm. ways, for reasons to not keep, keep um Mm -hmm. keep going Mm -hmm. so I think the question is what actually works on the good days at least that's the question for me is what works on the good days and I think on the good days um I've been incredibly lucky to over the past I guess nearly 20 years now be at every moment of my life have had people around me 
that are engaged in this work and that have done this work for a very, very long time. So when I think of my mentors, you know, back in, in Ohio, in San Diego, um, in London, even, even in Edinburgh, right? You know, there are people that have been doing this work for 20, 30 years. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily say that they are an inspiration so much as it kind of feels like a responsibility to, to continue to do the work, mm-hmm. um, to, to not check out, essentially, you know. So kind of you know that you are, you're building upon things mm-hmm. that have come before you and that, as I said, I've been incredibly lucky um, to have always been kind of surrounded by that that kind of figure or those kinds of people. And I think the second thing for me, um, and Shira, you'd actually asked about this a bit earlier, whether you know we identify as women of color. And I do identify as a woman of color. But I also also know, and this is an anxiety that has intensified again over my you know over the past two decades is that um you know that I have the privilege of being white passing and that in itself I think you know I a lot of let me actually I should start with this most of my education around issues of social justice happened when I was an undergraduate you know in communities of color in queer communities that's where my learning started and that's also I think to date still where I learned the most and those learnings have stayed with me um, in a way that a lot of other stuff perhaps hasn't and I think in that moment what what actually also happened was kind of my realizing that I had a very particular positionality in spaces of color both as somebody that you know wasn't American and didn't have the history of of kind of U.S. race and racism that was kind of part of my history. Um, and therefore, the, in a particular way, the privilege in that context of being international, right? And also, as I said, this kind of privilege of being white passing and, and the, the ways in which that then also becomes a responsibility that you kind of need to mobilize, right? Um, a way for you to kind of, because I know that I can say things and be heard in ways um, that people that are not white passing don't necessarily have access to, right? That there there are ways in which I am included in spaces. Um, At best, I'm a confusing presence, (laughs) Um, but I am not kind of a threatening presence um, in the ways in which a lot of you know, folks of color, queer folks, disabled folk might be. And I think that also kind of makes me feel like this is a responsibility. I, I really relate to that because um, you asked the question of, you know, what keeps you going? Why do you do it? And I can't live with the alternative. I literally cannot live with it. Like I, I you know, I, there's some, I suppose something metaphysical about this for me, um, which might be a strange thing for people to hear, but I don't never, I don't remember a time in my life where my difference and the difference of the people around me was not so clear. 
it for me it was from the time that I was three years old you know I've told the story many times in interviews etc but you know seeing my family's house toilet papered spray painted with Packies go home Packy is a derogatory term for some for brown people um, for those who don't know and that impression that knowingness in that moment Mm -hmm. that something was fundamentally wrong about that and then every subsequent experience that happened after that it's almost like I was I could not turn away I could not turn away so the you know the reality for me is that when when I see people of color queer folks women others who are in our institutions and they're Mm -hmm. struggling they're struggling because they're just trying to survive that breaks my heart it breaks my heart yeah that we are still in a world where there are entire groups of people that are not seen in their full humanity I mean how is that right it's not you know and so sorry I'm getting emotional here but I just can't live with that I can't live with that and there are enough people around me who also can't live with it. And so to Rashni's point about responsibility, mm-hmm. I feel a grave responsibility mm-hmm. to changing the world. And I feel like, I feel like that was, for whatever reason, it feels almost like it was given to me when I was mm-hmm. a child. And I think an alternative world is possible. Um, and so, you know, mm-hmm. I... I, I think that, you know, we, all of us collectively who do this work, but all of us who live mm-hmm. this work on a day-to-day, you know, there's something that we just have to keep pulling each other through because I don't, it doesn't happen alone to Rashni's point at all. And it, for me, it hasn't either. My family, my community, my mentors, academic, professional, otherwise have all made it possible mm-hmm. for me to continue to do what I do. Um, and I know that I have a massive contribution to make, mm-hmm. just like I know that other people of color, queer folks, women, people with disabilities have a massive mm-hmm. contribution to shaping our world. Um, and the alternative is just not justifiable to me. Mm-hmm. That's such powerful answers from both of you. Thank you so much for um, offering that as a gift to our listeners. I think that above all else, it highlights what's at stake um, for, for us in this work um, and what, what, yeah, what that responsibility looks like. Um, and I know that, yeah, I know that that responsibility is also one that needs to be nurtured and fed with community, with joy, with care. Um, that all of this is essential and that we don't, I don't think we talk about this enough. I don't think we talk about the, um, the sites, the sites that we require, the resources that we require um, to feel alive and to feel excited about the, the work, even as it is laborious, right? Um, I, was listening, I was listening to another podcast recently that was talking about how, you know, we talk about, often we talk about intergenerational trauma, but we rarely think about intergenerational joy um, and how we might <laughs> reflect on uh, the commitments that our ancestors had to living and thriving uh, pre-colonization and what all of that looked like. Um, 
but I, I think that we've given a lot to this conversation. I think that um, I think different folks in the community listening right now are going to walk away from this conversation with both thinking around the mechanics of how we do this work, how we address power in a real way, but also what's at stake for, for all of us in it. This reminds me of what Rashni was talking about, like the people in, in your life, Rashni, that have really shaped you and that sustain you. And it made me think about solidarity across racial lines and the, and the significance of that in this work, um, you know, particularly in the, in, the, in the context of the United States, where, you know, right now there is a huge awareness, um, I put awareness in quotation marks, as a result of the murder of George Floyd and kind of like the, the sort of racial reckoning and awakening that's happened, that's really put at the forefront the necessity to think about Black lives. Um, and that is absolutely so fundamental. And I think, you know, the question for me is always, how am I in solidarity for that? And that, I think, is an ongoing progressive question to be answered, because I think that every Every moment requires something different from each of us in order to move in order to move justice forward. So I just wanted to put that out there that I think for me also, um, I think a lot about how I'm in solidarity with other women of color, with other folks of color, um, in both in this work, but also in general. And and that is and that is really, really important because we all have a role to play, but we not may not all have the same role to play. Um, and the extent to which I can use my social capital and, and, and the ways in which as a South Asian woman in the context of tech, you know, the, the privilege, the relative privilege that I'm afforded, um, like Rashni was saying, to be able to say and do things is, um, is, is really important for us to keep front and center so that we can actually be in genuine solidarity for change. I just definitely agree um, sort of on this point, point of solidarity. And again, in this, in the sense of, you know, um, the, the responsibilities that we have um, in this work. And I also would like to add without, without kind of taking away from the importance of, of solidarity across racial lines. I think one of the things that we need to also be kind of careful about in this moment is the ways in which kind of racial justice, you know, is on everyone's mind right now. And I think it's being institutionally appropriated, oftentimes at the cost of other kinds of marginalization and other kinds of minoritization. And I think that's one of the things that I also am really kind of trying to push back against in the work that I do, which is, yes, my commitments, you know, derive from racial thinking and racial activism and all of that or racial justice thinking and you know racial justice activism but precisely because of that I think it's incredibly important also to be working in solidarity and working towards kind of you know justice for disabled folk for queer folk etc for trans folk especially you know which is another huge issue right now I think that that point is really also about getting out of scarcity mindset, right? Thinking that um, the work, you know, that social justice work is finite and that, um, um, yeah, getting out of those models of thinking about what uh, Angela Davis and Rabab Abdelhadi have, have the, framed as the indivisibility of justice, 
right? Really centering that as a framework for thinking about how to address systemic inequality. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think we can't get into the oppression Olympics. Um, that is not helpful. And, um, and actually by singularly thinking about race at, and not at the intersections, I think mm -hmm. also um, homogenizes the experiences of people of color because people of color are not just their race, right? So um, I, think, I think that point is, is really, really mm -hmm. important. Actually. Yeah, um, I'll take that moment to just plug in a previous episode we did on intersectionality for listeners of Undersong that haven't, haven't yet heard that. And I almost feel like we're ending this conversation on an episode waiting to happen around um, EDI and decolonization and what the differences between uh, these visions being what the spaces of possibility are. But I think we'll have to end here. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Salima Bamadi and Dr. Rashdi Limki. It was such an honor to have your time and your expertise and your thinking on this podcast episode. Yeah, we look forward to more conversations. Thank you, Shaira, and thank you, Rashdi. It was an honor. Thanks, Salima. Thanks, Shaira. Thank you.